I do invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 uh, today. And um, when it comes to discipline and correction, those are probably among the least favorite words that we have in our vocabularies. They confront directly our egos and our pride. And as human beings, our natural tendency when we're corrected is to become defensive. No one likes to be told that what they're thinking or doing is wrong. No one likes to hear that the direction that they are heading in is outside of the will of God. But discipline is necessary for our growth in every aspect of our lives. And as we age, we should be becoming more mature. And that means more mentally mature, more physically mature, and I would argue, most importantly, more spiritually mature. Now, as we've been studying Proverbs chapter 3, these last four consecutive weeks now, we have learned the marks of wise people, these marks of wisdom that are listed here. The first one we looked at was in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where we learned that we should be trusting in the Lord. Wise people trust in the Lord with all their heart. They don't go around leaning on their own understanding. In all of their ways, they acknowledge Him, and God is the one who makes their path straight. The very next week, we learned that wisdom will help us overcome our innate self-serving bias. It's just wired up within us. It tells us there to not be wise in our own eyes, but fear the Lord and shun evil, and then this will bring health to our body and nourishments to our bones. Now, last week, we looked at verses 9 and 10, the third couplet. And in that couplet, we were told that we should honor the Lord with our wealth from the first fruits of our, our blessings in life, and then God will see us through. He will take care of us. Now, this week we learn that God sometimes disciplines us, but His discipline is always out of love. God's discipline isn't motivated by anger or despair or disappointment or revenge or anything like that. God chastens us in love. In fact, this is an extremely important proverb because it teaches us that discipline is evidence of God's paternal love. Now, I want you to understand that this is really confirming what's taught elsewhere in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, I want you to uh, jot down Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We don't have time this morning to look at all those verses, but I want you to read them on your own. But verse 5 says this, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. In the New Testament, we have the same instruction going on in Hebrews chapter 12. And again, that's verses 4 through 11. But for time's sake this morning, we can't look at all those verses but I would encourage you to study them at home this week on your own. But notice verse uh, uh, 5 and 6. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens everyone He accepts as sons. And then verse 11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In my sophomore year of high school, I wasn't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, had been raised in this alcoholic, dysfunctional home, and I had been a pretty good kid up to that point in my life, but in my sophomore year of high school, I started running around with the wrong crowd, a crowd that would party and drink and, and smoke some pot once in a while. And the sad part is, two of those cohorts of mine were actually young people from this church that I ran around with, and two were from local Baptist churches in the area. Well, in my sophomore year, the last month of, of the year in school, we decided, got this wild-haired idea that we're going to skip school for the day. 
So a bunch of us rode the school bus to school. We jumped off the bus, walked over to the school parking lot, jumped into a friend of ours car, and took off for the day. We did a little partying. Where, where do you go where you can't be seen? So we ran into Superior to, to uh, goof around and do a few little things. And my mom at the time was working uh, at the newspaper in Superior. Had worked there for 27 years, uh, the evening smellygram. Excuse me, the telegram. The evening, te did I say smellygram? That's a different sermon for a different day. But anyway, um, she worked at the Evening Telegram, and she was out running advertisements to different businesses, and who do you suppose she sees out goofing around in town? So she calls the school directly saying, hey, I think there's some knuckleheads that skipped school today because I sent my son to school, and he's not in school. And meanwhile, we didn't realize that teachers actually supervise kids getting off the bus. And they noticed us getting off the bus and going to some, someone's car, and a person supervised, a teacher supervised the parking lot, and they noticed us getting into a certain person's car, and they saw the absentee list for that day and said, hey, I think these kids are skipping for the day. Well, we thought we were so smart, and we did a little partying that day, and we came back to school, and so everybody could get on their buses and go home, and two of us had to go to track practice. And we showed up at track practice, and our coach pointed us to the principal's office said, you need to go see the principal. And we got there, and oh boy, did we get in trouble. And then I went home that night, and I'm from this you know, messed up family, and I get the book thrown at me. I mean, literally, I'm a sophomore. I just got my driver's license. I bought this old clunker car. Life couldn't be any better, and I get uh, you know, grounded for a month. I mean, that's a life sentence when you're a sophomore in high school, and you've got wheels for the first time. I mean, this was tragic. And then the next day I go to school and I discover that all of my four peers that I was with who were in these nice Christian families, their parents wrote excuses for them, said that they had permission to not be in school. So I'm the only one that had detention upon detention upon detention. I'm the only one who missed track meets and got penalized out of that group. But you know what I learned? First of all, none of those people that were with me that day are walking with the Lord today. I was the only one out of that group that is now following the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it was eight months after that that I came to faith in the Lord. But I learned a valuable lesson that day that there are consequences to our actions in life. And Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 teaches us that this is the way it's supposed to work, that wisdom, it says, is a hard-earned possession with adversity usually being part of that equation. See, too often we think that we can become more wise in life without ever having to endure any adversity, without facing any obstacles or any suffering. And Solomon tells his son here, Rehoboam, right on the heels of honoring God with your wealth, and if you do that, put God first and tithe and be, bless Him from your first fruits and honor God with how you manage money, then, then God's going to take care of you. He's going to bless you. But here he says, life for the believer is not one continued, uninterrupted blessing after another. In fact, he says, you may face times of discipline in your life, and that's not a sign of disfavor with God. That's actually a sign that God loves you and that you're a child of God. You know, one of the best things a parent can do when disciplining a child is to have a time of affirmation with them after the fact. Because a natural human reaction for a child at that moment of being disciplined is to feel unloved. This is why it's so important to give them that affirmation and encouragement at that time. And when our children were growing up, that's exactly what we did. With our girls, we would sit down with them afterwards and tell them how much we loved them. We told them what they did was wrong. This is why it was wrong. 
and this is why you face the consequence, but there's nothing wrong with you. We love you. You're our daughter. And not every child that grows up in this world has the opportunity to grow up to be a wonderful young lady. But you have that opportunity because you are learning that there are consequences for your actions. We said the same thing to our son. Not everybody gets to grow up to be a, a wonderful young man in this world. Not everybody gets to grow up to be a good boy, a good young man. But you have that privilege because you're learning that there are consequences for your actions. See, it hurts to be disciplined. It hurts emotionally. That's why it's so important to affirm our children along the way. And I have to tell you, the two hardest things in my life that I've ever had to do was, number one, be a parent, raise children. Tough, tough job. The second thing is to be a spiritual parent, to be a pastor, to have spiritual oversight in people's lives. And man, over the years, I've had to deal with people in all kinds of heartbreaking situations. You know, when some people got involved in dabbling in the New Age movement, wow, uh, I had to talk to them about that, and they can't leave the church fast enough. Who are you to try and correct me? And then they just run down the road to the next church down the road, and people are wondering, why isn't so-and-so at church anymore? Or I tried to talk to someone once who was cheating on their spouse. Went to their house, knocked on the door. They told me, if you ever show up here again, the police will escort you away. Don't worry, we'll never be going to your church again. And when we once tried to address some folks that were spiritually abusing their children, oh, they cannot leave the church fast enough. But oh, they got to complain every step of the way and let everybody know how terrible they've been treated and how deeply they're hurt and all this stuff as they're going out the door. I can recall when people were once taking advantage of fellow Christians' charity because of their own irresponsibility. And then you try to sit down with them to let them know, hey, hey I think God has a better plan for your life. And oh, do they get bent out of shape. And every single time you see them in the future, they want to make sure to point out how their new church is meeting all of their needs. And if you try to ever suggest to a couple that their relationship might not be God's plan for their lives right now, or maybe the timeline of what they're thinking, because you're seeing some warning signs in your life, well, man, do they charge out of the church and all of the rest of their families go with them and they can't get out of here fast enough. Of course, nobody goes out and gets any help. And the relationships dissolve to the point where marriages fail and laws get broken and others get hurt along the way. And all of these are examples of, quote, unquote, good Christian people who are not open to God's discipline or correction in their life. And I could go on and on with you sharing examples from my 42 and a half years of being a Christian. And I'm sharing those negative examples today because that's what the context is. I could give you countless examples of where people have faithfully responded in good ways when there's been correction or discipline in their lives, and they've blossomed and been blessed because of that. But that's not what our text is saying to us here today. It's telling us that gaining wisdom is a hard-earned possession, and adversity is usually part of that equation. See, our natural tendency, though, in times of correction, is to react, as Solomon says, with resentment, to want to reject it. It's to loathe about it. Again, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Despise here in the original language means to reject it. It means to refuse it. No, I'm not going to accept that. And of course, the second line, which is you know poetic uh, parallel here, which is re-emphasizing the same thing, it says here in the original language to resent 
his rebuke. This means to feel a loathing and abhorrence, a sickening dread that someone would even consider or that God would be considering doing this in my life. Now, in this passage, what we are seeing is the language of discipline. We're not seeing here the language of punishment. In fact, another way to translate rebuke here in this text is to use the word correction. So let me ask you a question. Do you resent the Lord's correction in your life? Is that something that really bothers you? Or is it something that you actually allow into your life? And who are you right now accountable to in your life? Could you name that person or those people that could speak truth, could speak correction into your life? And how do you respond when you are corrected? Are you one of the people who tends to minimize it? Oh, that really isn't that big of a deal. You're making too much out of that. It really, do you minimize it? Or are you a person who tends to deny it? No, denial is my happy place. I live my life in denial. Are you one of those people? Or are you someone who shifts the blame? Oh, well, you know what they said to us. Or here's what they said. Or, and go around trying to justify it because you're shifting the blame. Or do you play dumb? Like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, get, I don't get this at all. What do you mean? Or do you sweep things under the rug? How do you respond when you're in times of correction? You know, as a pastor, I refer people to counselors and therapists on a fairly regular basis because life is tough. Hurts are very real, and, and help is necessary. And the cool part is help is available. But you know, I often encounter resistance from people. And it'll go like this because people need to do something, and I, I have to refer uh, mention to them, you know, if you could solve this yourself, you would have already solved this problem. But you're not able to handle this on your own. That's why you're in this dilemma that you're in. And please know that literally everybody here on our church staff has had to seek help from time to time in their life. They've had to see therapists. They've had to see counselors. There's nothing wrong with that. My wife, Cindy, and I have many, many, many times over the years. She battled cancer for eight years. Those are tough things to go through. We needed help. We needed some guidance to walk through that journey together in life. And we have our oldest daughter is special needs. She has disability issues. And there have been some really challenging times with her. Our entire family has sat down with counselors and therapists to talk things through and how do we best interact. And just last March and June, or March and April, excuse me, when our daughter was homeless and spent some time in, you know, in homeless shelters and on the street of Minneapolis, it was a tough time for Cindy and I. So we contacted a therapist. And this happened to be a secular therapist, not even a Christian therapist, but we'd gone to him many times. He's an excellent therapist, and of course, this meeting had to be a virtual one because of COVID-19, but you know, we had this session with him. We poured out our hearts to him, and he said some things to us that stung a little bit. They hurt because if this keeps going, here's what you're going to need to do. Here's what you're going to have to do, and it hurt to hear those things, but both of us looked at each other, and we knew he was exactly right. I even tell people that the president of our denomination, every single month, meets with his counselor, his therapist, to check in with him to make sure that he's taking care of himself, that he's covering the bases of self-care, and that he's being self-aware so that he can lead our denomination in the best possible way. You know, I've known so many Christians in my lifetime who have refused any kind of discipline. And here's what you need to understand. The Lord's discipline is God's guardrails in our lives that keep us from going off the path of life. And it is true. Hitting guardrails 
can hurt. It can really hurt. And I know that from personal experience, both metaphorically hitting those guardrails, and I know it from literally in life hitting guardrails because I was one time coming back from a ministerium down south, and I was traveling with two other pastors on the Interstate 35 coming back home, and it was the other pastor, one of them I was driving, and we hit a patch of black ice, spun out, bounced off a guardrail, pinballed with some other cars, and finally came to stop. And as we came to rest, Everybody looked at each other once we figured out we're not going to get hit by any other cars. And we said, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And we all said yes. Then I went to take my seatbelt off. And when I unclicked my seatbelt, it felt like someone had stuck a knife through my ribs. Unbeknown to me that the seatbelt, because it kept me from hitting the dash and going forward, had actually broken a number of my ribs uh, on my body. And it hurt like crazy. And then the joyful part of all that is I got to get stuck in an ambulance, a one-ton chassis vehicle, and bounced down frozen roads for 45 minutes to finish me off before I got to the hospital to tell me that my ribs were broken, okay? But you know what? Even after that excruciating pain, it was better than going over the ledge. In fact, the ledge there would have ended up dropping down into the St. Louis River in the wintertime. And, you know, one would think that having a God who cannot err, having a God who's perfect, correct us, that we would be delighted by that. But generally, we aren't. And sadly, some people only seem to learn lessons in life when they end up in one ditch or they end up in the other ditch. And some people never seem to learn at all until they completely go over the cliff, go over the edge. See, one thing that's unique about us as human beings is we're very good at assessing and seeing our own pain in life but we're not very good at seeing our personal responsibility. People somehow think in those moments, like Crystal was telling us, that when God is disciplining us, that God is somehow being mean to us or he's being cruel to us or there's something vindictive going on. So therefore, people feel they have the right to become bitter in those moments, bitter toward God or bitter toward this pastor or that spiritual leader or bitter toward this church. or They can be bitter about all these kinds of things. And you know, when we refuse to own our own personal sin, and we refuse to own our own junk, we are missing out on hearing the voice of God. Life is God's university, as C.S. Lewis once said, and he went on to say, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And sometimes the shouting that God is doing in the midst of our pain is his correction in our lives. It's, it's, he's rebuking us because of the life trajectory that we're finding ourselves on. He's trying to stop us from making mistakes that are going to harm us. And what many people miss along the way is that discipline primarily involves teaching and training. And nobody that I've ever met in my lifetime has ever thoroughly enjoyed, that's been in the military, thoroughly enjoyed boot camp. Nobody seems to say, oh man, that was just the greatest thing in my life. But everybody that comes out or makes it through boot camp comes out on the other end better because of the training and the instruction and all the discipline and things. They come out, in other words, on the other end, better people because they're disciplined people. They're respectful and respectful of authority, et cetera, et cetera. Ulysses S. Grant ended up turning the tide of the Civil War for the Army of the North because of the discipline and training that he put the Union Army through, preparing them for what was coming down the road 
for the north. Well, wisdom happens to be, the Bible says, a hard-earned possession. Adversity is part of that equation. And our natural tendency is to not like it. We actually want to refuse it. We want to reject it. We want to loathe it. But please grasp today that discipline is God's guardrails in life to keep us on the path of life. And discipline at its very core is evidence of paternal love. God's discipline of His children is out of a heart of love. Now, we do experience pain for numerous reasons in life, including the fact that we live in a fallen world, a broken world. That's the natural side effects of living in a fallen, broken world. There's evil out there. There are natural disasters. There's the effects of aging. There are diseases. There's pandemics. There's wars and conflicts, and we could go on and on. Those are all part of living in a fallen, broken world. But we also experience pain in our life because of other people's choices and other people's sins, as well as our own sins and our own bad choices. And in today's passage, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, the context here is addressing the affliction that we experience uh, by way of discipline because of our own poor choices, our own sins. And God's discipline of His children has been called by many commentators as a severe mercy. Mercy's compassion. Mercy's love. But it's a severe love or a strong love, a tough love. And although His correction may really hurt, it's not a sign of God's anger. Verse 12 tells us at the beginning, God does this because He loves us. And you know, when we complain about God's correction in our life, what we're actually asking for is not more love from God. We're actually asking God to give us less love. We're asking God to not take us so seriously. God, could you please just take me a little less seriously? I know, God, you think so much and I think I have such great potential, but could you just lower the bar a little bit, God, and not take me so seriously? You know, not discipline me like that. That's what we're asking for. We're actually asking for less from God when God is offering to us more. God is actually working for our best interest. But when we complain about that, we say, God, just don't be thinking so much of our best interest. Could you just lessen the interest you have in us just a little bit? That's what we're doing. We want less. You know, when things in your life go wrong, are you a person who thinks that God somehow has it out for you? Is that what you think? Or do you see God's correction in your life as a sign of God's love for you? Do you see suffering as a necessary part of growth in your life? You know, I heard an African pastor once from the Congo, which is the second poorest country in the world, say that suffering is never good. But suffering is a good teacher. See, when it comes to discipline, do you see that? Because all Christians will be disciplined because there are endless lessons in life to learn. There's countless opportunities for us to mature. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, point out to me, please point out to me my shortcomings. And God, lead me to maturity, to godly maturity. That's what the psalmist is asking for. So can you think of examples in your life where God's discipline of you led to personal growth? And have you learned in your life that God's correction of you 
is actually a sign of his love? And who is it that God has used in your life to correct you? And who has God used you to correct others in life? You know, friends, when God corrects us, he is not angrily taking from us. He's lovingly reinvesting in us. We're taking away, and he's adding more. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you more. I'm going to invest more in you because of what you're doing. Because, it says, verse 12, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Discipline often feels like anger when you're on the receiving end. It often feels like loss. It feels like God has somehow abandoned us. But if you read the book of Hebrews and look at chapter 11, you'll find an incredible list of people there called the heroes of the faith who have all suffered for their faith. And theirs was no country club religion. It was no polo shorts and shirts and nice shorts and an and easy lifestyle. They trusted God with all their hearts, and they suffered tremendous hardships. But notice, God wasn't angry with them. God, in that passage, actually commends them. And our adversity in life isn't evidence against us. And it certainly isn't evidence against God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Our life's challenges and rebukes are proof of God's love for us. You know, early last month, I received a phone call here at church that absolutely shocked me. My college track coach from the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse had called me. Now, he had coached there one year before I arrived on campus. Uh, he came from Cortland State where he, in New York where he'd done his graduate work and had coached track there. And then he came and coached five years at UW-Lacrosse, left after my senior year when my eligibility was used up. And then he went to the University of Minnesota where he became the head women's cross-country coach as well as the head women's track coach at that university and served there for over three decades. And he had been at UWL, the head women's cross-country coach too, while he was the head uh, men's uh, uh, coach. And uh, my only interactions with him in this entire time from 1982 until he called just last month were once I bumped into him in 2007 and once I bumped into him in 2009 uh, down in Minneapolis. Otherwise, there was no contact whatsoever uh, between him and me. But he had heard from one of my former teammates about my health conditions, the brain tumor that I had removed and the arteriovascular malformation in my brain that was removed. And so he'd heard about that. And he wanted to call and check in with me, he got the number for the church, and he called me out of the blue. Now, this coach, was a, he, he ran a tight ship. When I was at UW Lacrosse, there were 110 athletes on the track team. 36 got to get on the bus and travel to away meets. We never lost a competition. I have no recollection, other than when we went up against Division I competition, I have no memory in my college years of ever losing to anybody. We dwarfed people in our competitions uh, because we had probably close to 40 athletes on our team that had been state champions in high school or close to that. So our practices were so competitive that people were giving it their all and everything they did and there would be constant runoffs and time trials. People literally were diving across the finish line in practice to beat their teammate so they could go to the next meet. Road rash was a common athletic injury on our track team. And our coach ran organized practices because with 110 people, you got to have things tightly organized. But he, he didn't really, though, have a lot of rules of discipline. Basically, you could do whatever you want. You were free to act whatever you wanted outside of practice, but you had to follow three guidelines. Number one, never do anything 
that will embarrass your family. That was a rule. That was a guideline we had to live by. Number two, never do anything that will embarrass the universe, uh, the, our track team. And number three, never do anything that will embarrass the University of Wisconsin lacrosse. You're free to do what you want. Well, at one competition, when we were coming back, we were traveling back, and we stopped at a place to eat, and two of our team captains uh, got off the bus and walked across the store to a liquor store, purchased some alcohol. They were of age, and everything was legal, brought it on the bus. They didn't drink it on the bus. They brought it back to campus and had a party somewhere. So technically, they hadn't done anything illegal in that sense, but word got out, and somehow a reporter, a sports editor from the Lacrosse Tribune reported on that, that these kids were partying with alcohol they had purchased being on a university trip, and it made the papers, and oh, brought big embarrassment to the school and to our track team. And you know what our coach did? He suspended these two captains going into the conference meet. Now, we hadn't lost a conference meet in 11 years, indoor or outdoor conference, 22 consecutive victories we had not lost, and you just suspend two of your best athletes, two of your best coaches or, you know, uh, competitors, but he suspended them. Unfortunately, we still won the conference title. And then, though, those two individuals did not get to go on to nationals. They were all Americans. They'd already placed in the past in the top eight in nationals in our division, and they didn't get the opportunity to go to nationals. He was a very demanding coach, but he also carried very deeply for us. And I didn't understand how deeply he cared until as a 73-year-old man, he heard about what I was going through he picked up the phone, found my number, and he called me. Of all the athletes he's coached, which probably is over 8,000 people in his 40-plus year career, he could remember the name of Daryl Nelson. And we were able to, I was able to share with him about my wife and my children. I was able to share about my life's work, my faith. With him about his family. His wife was retiring as a teacher that day, and his older son, Ben, his oldest son, I remembered him from being a little toddler at our meets and practices from time to time. And there's another brother he had. They own a business in New York. He told me about his daughter, and uh, we caught up with each other. And at the end of our time on the phone, I thanked him for his impact upon my life and the important lessons that I have learned from him that I've carried and used for the rest of my life. You see, discipline is evidence of paternal love. And God corrects us because he loves us. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you again for this wonderful journey you're taking us on through Proverbs. And God, as we've been spending this time in Proverbs 3, learning the marks of wise people, you have taught us today that wise people are the ones that accept discipline. So often Christians refuse it. They loathe it. They reject it. But God, you instruct us here that we need to be open to that. And, and when it comes in our lives, we got to analyze it and say, okay, God, what do you want me to learn? How can I grow here? And Lord, in this culture we're living in right now, the world needs to see mature, godly Christian people. And we know, God, that only comes about through discipline in our lives. Thank you for the times we have been disciplined and have learned and have grown. And God, I pray that we'll be open to that in the future and pass those precious lessons along to our children and grandchildren. We pray in Jesus' name.